This is a tough passage for today. And we will follow it from here into a little bit of Exodus chapter 2 as well. This passage is a picture of a revolutionary act that two women engaged in and brought to life through God's community. And I don't know about you, but every time I think of the word revolutionary, I go back to my history classes. I think of the American Revolution, perhaps, or Paul Revere and his midnight ride. I think of George Washington, or I'm reminded of maybe classes that I almost fell asleep in about maybe the French Revolution or things like that. I don't often think about a quiet revolution, a turning toward God, and a rejection of systems of oppression. I think of war when I think of revolution. But there are other definitions of revolution. How many of you have a smartphone maybe with you right now, right? How many of us have had perhaps our lives changed because of this one little device? It is rumored that by the year 2020, 80% of all adults on the planet will have access to a smartphone. This is technology that's less than eight years old, as far as being in the mass market. We think of revolutionary ideas or inventions that completely changed the way we interact with one another or the way we go about our lives. Inventions like electricity or the wheel. Or I remember going to my grandmother's house and playing in her basement years ago while she was still living. And she still had a basin and a washboard in her basement. And that was how she would do her laundry. And she had a series of ropes hanging from the ceiling in the basement. And she would hang dry everything. And I remember as a child, my sister and I running back and forth through her wet sheets in the basement as they hung to dry. And when I throw laundry in my washer and dryer... I don't even think about how sometimes inventions like that revolutionized life for people. A revolution is a complete turn from one direction toward another. Penicillin and the invention of antibiotics revolutionized healthcare, right? And how we live and care for one another. And so when we look at the concept of a revolution and explore what these women did and what Jesus came to do and ask ourselves then, are we supposed to be revolutionaries of some sort? Let's think of it as a complete turning from one direction to another. A revolution from the Latin word revolutio is a fundamental change in power or organizational structures, the forced overthrow of a government or social order, but also, which is important for us today, the sweeping and wide-reaching change in the way something works or is organized. My question for us today is, has Jesus and the love of Jesus and the love of God in your life changed the way you organize your life, the way you see your life? Has it changed any of the decisions that you make? And did it ever bring you to a place where if you were faced with the sort of challenge that the women in this story were faced with, you could defy injustice and power or whatever other thing limits you and turn toward what God is inviting you to do. 
Our story for today begins right after the era of Joseph had ended. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Donny Osmond, that's the story that happened right before we get to the text. And if you're not familiar with it, there was an era of great prosperity and peace experienced by Israel. Israel lived in Egypt. They were in an occupied land. But because of Joseph and his relationship with the Pharaoh and God's intervention to bring peace in that time, they didn't experience life so much like occupied slaves. They enjoyed great freedom. And we're told earlier in in Exodus in chapter 5 that when Joseph came down to Egypt, there were probably 70 Israelites. That's it. And now they had gone on and experienced tremendous growth and tremendous prosperity. And Joseph and Pharaoh died. And the story of their peace and their connection with one another and their commitment to one another was lost. And we're told that a new Pharaoh, a new leader, a new king had come to the throne. And this new leadership is found biting its nails, anxious and wondering. Suddenly, there's a raging population of people that are not Egyptian doing well and thriving and living throughout the land of Egypt. And as a leader, he starts to ask himself anxious questions. Could these folks overrun Egypt? What if they joined their numbers with the warring factions that are out on the fringes and out on the borders? Could they amass enough energy and momentum to overthrow my government? Would we lose our power and our prestige to them? So we're told that Pharaoh forces them into labor. And this is the sort of routine that Egyptian leaders would do for centuries. So many of the public buildings throughout ancient Egypt were built by slave hands. In fact, many of them proudly had the inscription displaying the fact that, quote, no free men were used in the making of this building. They were proud to work this community of people almost to death. But that didn't seem to be enough. God's favor was upon them. And they continued to grow and number and they continued to pose a threat to Pharaoh. So he pulls two women aside. Shipra and Pua are their names. And in his mind, they're really nothing, but they lead the women who are midwives, who deliver all the children that come to life in the Israelite communities. And he tries to scare them into compliance. And he says, we want you to kill the baby boys. We're going we're gonna to end the growth of the Israelite people by killing the male children. And commentators have looked at the gruesome details of this story and have surmised that the invitation for them, the command for them actually would have been to likely either strangle these children upon birth or drop them in a horrific way so that they died. And the midwives are faced with a horrible decision, are they not? I mean, have the blood of innocent children and your own people on your hands or lose your own life because surely they were not going to be allowed to stand in front of Pharaoh and say, well, we didn't really get around to doing that thing you had us do. They would have lost their lives. They're faced with a horrific decision. 
They choose a revolutionary act of turning against Pharaoh and of letting these very children live. The Hebrew midwives, however, were told, feared God. They feared God, and they do not, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And as expected, right, Pharaoh calls them in and says, what's happening? These children are living. And the midwives come up with this sort of goofy response. They, they, they have their babies so fast, we can't even get there. And he's so detached from the situation, he seems to believe that, apparently. And then offers another edict. And says, well, you know what? If we're not going to kill them when they're born, we're going to engage the entire community and parents in the act as well. And we're going to have these children upon birth thrown straight into the Nile River. And we'll see where that story leads us in a moment. But to be clear, like I said, revolutions often have an element of war and violence in them. And I am not advocating for that at all. God does not call us for that. But he does call us to revolutionary acts like this, where we look at the systems that go so strongly and sharply against the call of God and the way the community of God is supposed to live that we cannot help but act against them. Jesus was a revolutionary. Now, at the time of Jesus, the Jewish community was looking to him to be their military leader. The Jewish community was expecting a Messiah who would come and overthrow, with political or military violence, the Roman government that they lived under. Once again, the people of God are living in an occupied territory. And they are the disdain of Rome. And their religion is mocked by Rome. And there is very little that they have as far as rights and freedoms to live as they believe God is calling them to do in Rome. But they read the scriptures to say that this person, this Messiah, was going to come and do a violent upheaval to throw one established rule of power out and to bring in another under Jesus. We just came through the season of Easter and Lent and on Palm Sunday, the celebration of Palm Sunday, all of the excitement when Jesus rode into Jerusalem was because they were excited that this military leader was finally coming. They had no idea yet that Jesus had come to start a dramatically different type of revolution. And Peter... Our beloved Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus, doesn't understand this. And Peter is known as sort of this loud mouth, brash leader. And he gets upset with Jesus when Jesus starts to talk about the different sorts of system that his revolution is going to bring in. And in Mark 8, we're told this. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter was like, no, no. <laughs> this isn't the sort of revolution that you're bringing. You're, what is this talk of death? You're going to be our leader on the throne of Rome. 
But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? The revolution that Jesus came to usher in did not make sense to so many of his followers. And when he stood face to face with the power of Rome, the power he was expected to overthrow, when he stood before Pilate, he was asked again, what sort of king are you? What are you in charge of? Where is your domain? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. The life of Jesus was absolutely revolutionary. It hailed and celebrated the sorts of acts that these Hebrew midwives did so long ago, these turnings away from injustice and power and toward the life and love of God. And Jesus came to flip all of our expectations completely upside down. And think of the things that he said, love your enemies. I mean, that is so hard to do. Our culture teaches us to stick it to our enemies, right? Get one up on them if you can. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I love my neighbor enough to maybe collect their mail when they're on vacation or say hi to them. But wow, like love your neighbor as yourself. Give to your neighbor. Set up life, set up success and hope and joy for your neighbor just like you would do it for your very self. And oh, by the way, your neighbor isn't just the person next door to you. It's people all around us. Wow. That is revolutionary if we let that sit in. To find your life, you must lose it. To lead, you must serve. To be the first, you really ought to be the last. Blessed are the poor above the rich, the meek above the strong. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who do the things of God that lead to God's good work. We're told in our story for today that God blessed those Hebrew midwives. It's believed that if you were serving as a midwife at that time in history, it was because you weren't able to conceive your own children. And so you would bring other children into life. But what we're told in this scripture is that God's particular way of blessing those women for what they did was to give them families of their own. These are revolutionary concepts. Anything on that list, if we dared to just live one of those things full to its completion, can you imagine how it would change our own lives? Make us uncomfortable, admit that. But it would change the lives of so many people around us as well. And friends, when we read scripture, it's easy to look at these stories and go, okay, well... They're in the Bible. That's them. That's not me. 
know, I live here in this era today, and, and those are stories of, of, of wonderful, the best of the best, the people that God used to do his thing. What does that mean for me? But the reality of scripture is it is filled with a bunch of stories from misfits and nobodies and unsuspecting silent revolutionaries just like those two women. In a million years, they would never have expected that God would use them. And that they would be in a situation to turn toward God's love and grace and power. You know, interestingly, commentators have a hard time placing the exact date of this story because the Pharaoh in this text remains unnamed. But two nobody at the time women have their names in this scripture. We're still talking about them to this day. This is what God does with his people. He uses them. And scripture is filled with unsuspecting leaders, shaky leaders like David, risky women like Abigail and Ruth, hotheads like Peter, murderers and naysayers turned devout like Paul, all who had a revolutionary experience in their life that turned them from one place and led them toward another. So what about us? Here we are, most of us comfortably seated, right, in our North American suburban church. Slavery, physical slavery, exists at stunning levels all over the world today, but not for us immediately here in this moment. At least I don't think so. Most of us came here this morning of our own free will. Some of you were forced to come by somebody. I get that. Most of you will go home. You'll have a moment this week, even if you work more than you really should or want to, you'll probably at least have a moment this week of rest where you can put your feet up and make your own decisions because we're not physically enslaved. So when we talk about revolutions and turning from systems of oppression, it's very clear to see what that looks like in a passage like Exodus. But what about us today? What are we slaves to? You know, interestingly, uh, stories of occupation, of slavery, uh, stories that come out of the Holocaust or, or prisoners of war, people who are physically held captive, will sing songs or offer prayers or repeat refrains that remind them that while their physical bodies are enslaved, one thing that you can not take from a person forcibly is their soul. And the hope that they have. Anne Frank once wrote, those who have courage and faith will never perish in misery. And Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl says this, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. And he talked about this in the thick of moments in concentration camps. He says, the last of one's freedom is the choice, is, is, is to choose my attitude in any given circumstance. So you can be physically enslaved, but spiritually free. But I wonder for us, are we spiritually enslaved today? Do we walk around physically free to do what we want and make most of our own decisions? But do we have our very souls enslaved? We are in a culture with systems that require a revolutionary response. 
We live in systems that tell us we are defined by our possessions, not by our people. My children have already figured this out. They come home from school and they want to know why their stuff doesn't match up to the other stuff. It's not who you are that matters, they would tell you. It's what you have that matters. And I try the hardest I can to reverse that. But very young, they have already learned that there is a system that defines them by their possessions, not by their person. And we live in a world that perpetuates, yes, poverty and racism and greed. But we live in a world that also banks and trades on a system that sees people as commodities, as a means to an end, as a way to sustain and perpetuate our own comforts. We can be, if we allow ourselves, to be ruled by fear instead of hope. We make decisions based on what we're afraid of, and we want to buffer ourselves and secure ourselves, and we want to play into systems that prey on our fears. And whether it's our media or our technology or whatever it is that feeds those fears, we live into a system that perpetuates that. We live in systems that tell us we best not miss out. We have a fear of missing out. What if you get that and I don't? What do I have to do to keep up and to keep at it? And we live in systems where power is prized over generosity and engagements with others. Walter Brueggemann is a great commentator, and he talks about this. He says, instead of living in the kingdom of God, today we live in a kingdom where we just hope for more. Entitled consumerism, he calls this. There's something more that will make us comfortable, something more that will make us safe, something more that will make us happy, and we have given in to that system. And it makes us stop and wonder that if perhaps we're also in need of a revolution against those things. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy soul and body. What systems do we need to turn against? What revolution needs to happen in our own lives so that our thinking moves from fear to hope, from commodities to communities. What are we being asked to rally against? I'm not going to pretend that I know what it looks like for each one of you. We live different lives. We all come from different situations and different stories and different backgrounds. But throughout story, throughout scripture, there is the story, the thread of turning from one way of being toward kingdom life and toward the kingdom way of being. And so what can we learn from the old stories of the Old Testament into the life of Jesus and into the movements of today that tell us we are not commodities. My soul is not a commodity. I am free to turn my life and orient it toward Jesus and make the decisions that enliven my soul and the souls of others. It's interesting because right after this passage, we move into, of course, Exodus chapter 2. And there's another movement that begins in that chapter when Pharaoh says, throw those babies into the river. There's a set of parents who are there as well. And Miriam and Aaron 
are two children of those parents. They're probably 10 or 12 years old, and they're born before the edict of infanticide was, was ordered. But it turns out their parents had a third child. They had a baby brother. The mom, Jochebed, and the father, Amram, have a third child. And this time, that child is born under this edict. And they love their child like parents do. And they don't take the child and drown the child in the river like they were supposed to. They hide the baby. And like babies do when they're loved and cared for, he starts to grow. And around three months of age, they realize they cannot hide this child anymore. But they're smart. So Jochebed and Amram begin to take a look at the situation around them. And they begin to survey their surroundings. And it turns out that right down at the Nile River, there's maybe a little inlet or what commentators suggest is a safe, maybe fenced off place at the river where crocodiles and swift currents and all the other things that could happen on the Nile River, there's a place that's protected from that. And it's a place that's consistently protected and guarded because the Pharaoh's own daughter, the princess of the kingdom, goes down there for her daily routine. And she bathes in the river, and it's a safe spot. And Jacobet and Amram notice this. And they put their daughter Miriam in the bushes. And Jacobet goes, and they place the baby in a basket on the safe banks of that area. And wouldn't you know it, the princess looks and sees a baby in a basket and is so taken with this child that she, the daughter of the Pharaoh, cannot commit the act that she is under command to commit as well. And instead, she says, go, find me. She says to her maid, go find me, one of those Hebrew women, to take care of this baby. And oh, isn't it interesting? There's already one just standing there in the bushes. The mom. Me? What baby? There's a baby in a basket? Oh, sure, I'll take. I'll take that baby and go raise that child. The child's name is Moses. If you don't know the story of Moses, it's the story of Exodus. Watch Charlton Heston when you go home if you want to catch up, right? This is, these are the acts that we, that that we follow. These turnings from injustice and impression and for the things that enslave us and this moving toward God, not so that we have a good story to tell, but so that the story of God goes on. God chooses people to bring his story and his glory and his kingdom to earth. And so I invite us today to think about whatever revolutionary act we're being called to move toward God with. For ourselves and our own lives, yes, but for the future and the history and for all that comes after us. Because we worship a revolutionary God whose kingdom is not of this world. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you call us to serve you in revolutionary ways, that you call us to act on your behalf to bring your kingdom purposes to this world. Help us, Lord, to be revolutionary in whatever ways, small or big, seen or unseen, that you have called us to. And may all that we do in those places be blessed by you and be for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen.